6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. The word for figure is, is like a parabola. It's where we get the word parabola from. A placing of one thing by the side of another, a juxtaposition of the ships in a battle, like side by side. A comparing, a comparison of one thing with another, a likeness, or more precisely, a similitude, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. See, the author's intent is not to speak of these things point by point individually. He's simply highlighting a contrast between the old and new. That's one reason I resisted the temptation to get into too much detail and all this, because he's really trying to just give you the broad picture to realize all this was intended to be replaced. That's his point. Cardinal says, he's not passing judgment on the, uh, on the uh, old system. It's external only, and that's why it was temporary, because it was external only, fleshly. Now, the word Reformation, diorthosis, is making straight or correct to make right. It's going to be all restored in its proper condition. This is the only use of this word in the entire New Testament. Okay, let's summarize the sanctuary. It was on earth. The old one was on earth. A worldly sanctuary made of earthly things, material things. It was but a shadow of things to come. It never was the reality. It, at best, was just a shadow, a picture of the real one that's in heaven. It was inaccessible to the people. You would have been stopped at the first entrance. You would have needed a sacrifice there, or you couldn't have gone any further, which the priests served for you. Today, we are a priesthood of believers, and each one of us has access to God. Staggering. That is one of the great privileges we have, because Christ has rent that veil in two at the, on the cross. It was all temporary. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep the way open for eternity. It was ineffective changing the hearts of the people. The earthly sanctuary had little to do with changing people's lives. But today you can come to Christ and He can change your life. He can enable you to worship God in spirit and in truth and to make Him a reality in your own life. That's the big difference. You can never serve Him until you have worshipped Him. And most people have no idea how to worship. We need to find that out. None do you understand that. Now, the contrasts continue. The next contrast, we had the better priesthood in chapter 7, the better covenant in chapter 8, the better sanctuary in chapter 9, first 10 verses. Now, we're going to go to the better sacrifice. The old priesthood was based on animal blood. It only provided a temporary atonement. Atoning the sins did not deal with them, it just covered them temporarily. Maybe don't realize that's what the word really means. The word kafir in the Hebrew means to cover to cover. The new priesthood is based on the Messiah's blood, which provides for an eternal redemption. The old just looked for the, to the new for fulfillment. 
Verse 11, but Christ being come and a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, once and for all. Not made with hands. See, all this, tabernacle, temples, all made with hands. Not of this building. Now, it's, uh, it, uh, by the way, the word there for building is katissus, which actually word is, speaks of the whole creation. Not of this creation. It's heaven. By his own blood, he entered in once. Now, he's contrasting this with the five offerings of Leviticus 1 through 7 and Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. No, he entered in once. Took care of all of those. In these two verses, verse 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9, there are three features concerning Messiah's entrance to heaven. It was through his own blood, it was once for all, and resulted in his obtaining eternal redemption. Once and for all. Then he continues, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify through the purity of the flesh. These were the three basic things of the legal. The blood of bulls and goats. That's what cleansed, the, they were used for ceremonial uncleanness of the priests. The blood, of, the blood of bulls were for the priests, the blood of goats for the people. That was the concept, bulls and goats. The ashes of the red heifer sprinkling the unclean. The ashes of the red heifer were used for cleansing a corpse uncleanness. Someone who touched a dead body was considered ceremonially unclean, and there was a procedure by which the ashes of the red heifer with, mixed with water would be sprinkled. That's all ceremonial ritual stuff. The sprinkling of the waters for the unclean waters of separation. This is all Numbers 19. This is a, just a broad brush summary of Numbers 19. Now here we have some rabbinic logic. I'm indebted to Arnold Fruchtenbaum pointing out this is called the Comer. It's a kind of ar rabbinical argument from the lesser to the greater. If animal blood could do all this, how much more could the Messiah's blood do? Is the argument. If animal blood through an earthly ritual can cleanse the flesh, how much more can the blood of Jesus cleanse? Obviously, you know, uh, uh, many orders of magnitude more pure and so forth. The means of cleansing was the blood of Christ. The basis of cleansing was the voluntary death of Jesus. It was without spot or blemish since there was no moral failure on his part. He had no sin. There's no moral spot. All the previous Levitical priests and high priests had sin. Jesus had none. Peter makes the same point, by the way. The object of all this was to purge the conscience from dead works of the Levitical system. Dead works and the Levitical system are equivalent in this whole discussion. The object is to purge the conscience from the dead works, the Levitical system, which are now dead because they have come to an end as far as God is concerned. They're going to literally come to an end in 38, day, uh, 38 years when the temple burns to the ground. The goal of Jesus' death was for the believers to serve the living God. And they're not to return to the dead works, but to serve the living God. And this is aimed right at these Jewish believers who still have a yearning to go back to the old system to keep the persecution off their back. No, they're missing the point. And for this cause, he, Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. They which are called, the past, 
those who came under the old covenant were saved when they brought their sacrifices. Why? Because they were in effect looking forward to the fulfillment by Jesus Christ. They're anticipatory emblems, if you will. The Lord Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham looked forward to Christ being here. All believers in the Old Testament gained their salvation because they were looking forward to the completion of their program by Jesus Christ. Ratifying the New Covenant in contrast to the Mosaic Covenant. While the Mosaic Covenant was able to point out transgressions, it could never bring the inheritance of promised blessing. That's why a new covenant was needed and why and he, Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. The death of Jesus made atonement for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. So he takes care of all the past. The Old Testament sacrifice did not remove sins of the Old Testament saints. The Hebrew word kapur, yom kapur, for atonement simply means to cover. Animal blood could not remove the sins. It only covered them pending Christ's completion. This is why an Old Testament saint died, he could not go directly to heaven. He went into Sheol in a place called Abram's bosom until after the cross when they're gathered. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. You know, it's interesting, a will is only a promise until the guy dies. His death is what makes it actual. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. The death of the testator. It's the death of Christ which saves you. A will provides for inheritance, but until the testator dies, the contents of the will with its benefits and provisions are just promises. They become effectual when he dies, and Christ has died for you and me. And that underscores something else I'd like to get across. The crucifixion wasn't a tragedy, despite uh, Mel Gibson's very uh, effective film that he put together. It creates a misimpression. It wasn't a tragedy. It was an achievement. It was planned before the foundation of the world. Christ fulfilled hundreds of specific specifications to make it all work. Whereupon, neither the First Testament was dedicated without blood. In other words, it was, there's two, no, be careful, there's two negatives there. It was dedicated with blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. So the first covenant was ratified by blood, by animal blood. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, for without the shedding of blood is no remission. Where does a Jew shed blood today? He can't. There's no temple to do it. It's gone. Blood is mentioned six times in the last five verses. Almost all things by the law are purged. Why does it say almost? Because there are some things that were cleansed by water and there are some things that were not cleansed at all. So it's, it's precisely correct. This is almost all. And the ultimate blood, of course, is the blood of the Lamb. It appears specifically four times in the book of Revelation. The blood of the Lamb is the, is the climactic theme. The climactic theme. 
And Adam and Eve were taught in the garden in Genesis 3 that by the shedding of blood, they'd be covered. And that was an a, a allegory in advance, a pattern in advance. And the blood all the way through, cover to cover, climaxing in the blood of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. In other words, the tabernacle, the, man, the, the, the human one on the earth, it was uh, uh, purged with animal blood. Well, what we're really talking about is the real tabernacle, and it also had to be purged, but with real blood, the Christ blood. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. You notice he never went into the holy of holies in his entire ministry? There's no record he ever, he would have been. You see, he's not a Levite. Not in any of that. Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Wow. Heavens should be purified. Do you know the heavens had to be purified? That's pretty wild. Why did heavens have to be purified? Huh? The heavenly things needed cleansing because sin originated in heaven. Didn't originate in Eden. Satan fell before Eden, huh? And that's all through Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel, I mean, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Job, several places, and so on. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. See, high priest had to do it every year. No, Christ once and for all. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now a little confusion. There's the word world here twice, but it's not the same word. The foundation of the world in the first place is the cosmos, the universe. Foundation of the world, the universe, the created world. And now once in the end of the age, eon, the age. So there's a difference Different, you get the difference. One's, one's the universe at large, the other one is a time dimension, not time domain. Hath he appeared to put away sin? I'm interested in that word because that's the same word that abolished the law. Sin's put away, the law is abolished. Disannulled is what the word means, put away. Covenants old versus new. Just in case you didn't get it, we'll just go through it one more time. In one case you have repeated sacrifices, in the other case you have one sacrifice once for all. Is there life on other planets? I don't know. But if there is, you've got a problem. It's either sinless, and that gives me a problem, or it's sinful, and that gives me a bigger problem. Because Christ, I don't think, is going to die on another cross on another planet. Repeated sacrifices, one sacrifices. The blood of animals, his own blood. Covering sin, putting away sin. Big difference. For Israel only, for all sinners... The Levitical system was for Israel. It wasn't for the Edomites or the Amalekites. No, it was for Israel. No, the new covenant is for all sinners. In one case, it was left in the Holy of Holies. The other case, he entered heaven and ministered there. In, in, the, in the Levitical system, he came out after all that to bless the people the high priest did. He's going to come back to take his people to heaven. What a difference. What a difference. Then we get this interesting verse, often, often quoted, and is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. 
That's a general rule, not an inviolate thing. What do I mean by that? It's appointed unto man once to die. There are exceptions to that. There were two people that didn't die, Enoch and Elijah, right? There are a handful of people, a handful of people that died twice. Did you know that? Lazarus did. Jairus' daughter did. The widow of Nain's son. These were all people raised by Christ, but not given supernatural bodies. They were just brought back to life. They died a second time. And many people feel Jonah, same thing. When Jonah was in the whale, he, may have, he died and brought back to life. That's a subtlety that we believe the text suggests. But in any case, those are exceptions. But there's another reason that this is here. And that's a rebuttal of reincarnation. It's interesting how pagan beliefs typically embrace some concept of reincarnation. That is non-biblical. That is non-biblical. What about physical death? It's a consequence of sin. And it demonstrates the universality of sin. You find someone didn't die, he's, you find someone sinless, he's not going to die. There ain't, ain't, ain't none. It affects the body only, not the cessation of consciousness. When you die, you're still conscious. That's a disturbing discovery. That's what Luke 16 tells us. Where did the rich man find himself? Conscious. He knew his brothers. He knew what they had to do. Could they only... Get the word to them. I mean, he was conscious. And Luke 16 is all full of that, and so is other, other passages. Physical death ends at the resurrection of the body. Once you get your new body, that's over. That's immortal. Whether you're saved or not, there are those that will be resurrected to the great white throne. Death is not inevitable to the redeemed. Because there are going to be some of us that are still alive when Christ calls us all home. It's called sleep for the Christian because his body may be awakened any moment. Soul and spirit live independent of the death of the tabernacle of the body. The soul and spirit. We're, we can talk a little bit more about that before we're through. A Christian's death, he, he is at once, he's with the Lord, awaiting resurrection and the return of Christ. You'll be with the Lord even before you have your resurrection body. What kind of a body do you have? I have no idea. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Wow. That's salvation in the future sense. We have three tenses of that. We should, let's review that. Salvation in the... There's three tenses of it. I love Rodemacher's remark. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. What on earth does he mean? By way of review. It's this future tense that surfaces here in chapter 9, verse 28. Justification is the past tense. Sanctification is the present tense. Glorification, the future tense. Justification, the gift of God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ alone. If you've trusted Christ, you have that. It's a gift. You can't lose it if you tried because it's God's commitment, Christ's commitment. He gives it to the Father. It's his, it's his prayer of intercession on your behalf that preserves that. No, that's bulletproof. Anyone that argues that hasn't done his homework. But that leads to some other confusion about sanctification. That's a work in progress that involves the faith and the works of the believer. When you're justified, you haven't changed. You've just been declared not guilty. You've got your passport to heaven stamp, but you haven't changed. Sanctification is that process of changing you. And you're, you, you don't get, you don't, you're not saved because you've changed. You change because you're saved. Progress, prog work in progress. 
And that leads to the third one that we don't haven't talked a lot about, glorification. That's what he's alluding to here. That's the result of the previous aspects. That's when you get that. Let me, all, all believers will be glorified. Romans 8 hammers that. Resurrected and given a body like Christ. But some will have more glory, more reward than others. That's what Hebrews is all about. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. The paradigm of self, past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. Present tense, separation from the power of sin. Sin need not reign in your life because the Holy Spirit can be called upon to preserve you. Future tense, separation from the very presence of sin. And that, of course, is a kingdom uh, opportunity. First one we call justification, present tense we call sanctification, future tense we call glorification. All three of these are tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. By way of review, but if you understand that, everything gets very clear. But whenever we have reincarnation, that's, I, I'm not going to be relaxed, I'm not going to get into a whole new age thing about these people that believe in reincarnation. But I do have to give you, just a, with my tongue-in-cheek, a little gleam about uh, reincarnation. What is reincarnation? A cowboy asked his friend. It starts, his old pal told him, when your life comes to an end. They comb your hair, wash your neck, and clean your fingernails, and put you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now the box in you goes into the hole that's been dug into the ground. Reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath that mound. Them clods melt down just like the box and you who is inside. And that is when you begin your transformation ride. And in a while the grass will grow upon that your rendered mound till someday upon that spot a lonely flower is found. And then a horse may wander by and graze upon that flower that once was you and now has become your vegetated bower. Now the flower the horse done eat, along with his other feed, makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed. But there's a part that he can't use, so it just passes through. And there it lies upon the ground, this thing that once was you. And if perchance I should pass by and see this on the ground, I'll stop a while and ponder at this object that I found. And I'll think about reincarnation and life and death and such. But I'll come away concluding, why, you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> Shame on me, but I couldn't resist sort of including that as just a little light version by Walt McRae. It's a, it's a poem that uh, sort of gets a point across. <laughs> okay, in your next session, chapter 10. And as you read chapter 10... Ask yourself some questions. Are all sins equal? Are some judgments distinctive? Is there a distinction between judgments in this life and the next? We get judgments in this life and get judgments later. Are there distinctions? And a little background will be Numbers 15, but I'll let you dig into that for our next session, and let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we stagger as we attempt to understand the awesome gift that you've given us in the new covenant. 
We thank you, Father, for the old covenant as it teaches us the necessities that have to be fulfilled in the new. We thank you, Father, for its lessons. We thank you, Father, for the law that shows us our need of a Savior. But, Father, we thank you above all for providing that Savior, our high priest, who gave himself to be a sacrifice for us and who still continues day by day to burden himself with our needs as he intercedes for each of us. We can't possibly comprehend all that, Father. But we thank you for it. And we do pray, Father, that you would make it ever so real to each of us. We pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us an awareness of your presence as we savor the adventure of your word. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to reprioritize our lives in the light of your kingdom, in the light of that final exam that we'll all have before you. Oh, Father, we would pray that you would show each of us the baggage we should shed, the, the things we need to repair, the things, the many, many ways we grieve you, our, our sins of presumption as well as ingratitude, that all these things may be confessed and put behind us before that day of review. And Father, we do pray that you help each of us to discover that unique, specific calling you have for each of us, that we each might grow in grace the knowledge of him, that each of us might ultimately hear that fond salutation, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, how we covet that, Father. We, we know that only by your Holy Spirit can we attain it. Not by, not by power, not by might, but by your Spirit, Father. We just thank you as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation whatsoever, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>